I was 11 years old. I know that they had been in my world simply because once they, you know, visited our shores and the world, they never left our world. Yes. Um, you know, that's the, like I tell my students when we talk about the Revolver album, if the Revolver album is referring as, you know, I believe it does to the Wheel of Life or a record on a turntable, that record uh, quite literally has never stopped spinning since they released it. You know, I mean, it's something from that album is playing somewhere. It may be playing digitally now, but it, it has never stopped. everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson, and we're, we're getting off the Bruce train slightly, uh, though of course he always comes up, and uh, we are going to Strawberry Fields Forever, maybe? Uh, we are talking John Lennon and the Beatles tonight, and I am thrilled to have Ken Womack here uh, because uh, he's recently written a book and Lennon is one of the subjects. So timely indeed. Uh, Ken, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Jesse. I'm glad to be here and I'm very proud uh, to be on a podcast associated with Mr. Springsteen, uh, living here as I do in Monmouth County. And of course, uh, I'm proud to be a professor of English and popular music at Monmouth University where of course, Bruce has just magnificently gifted us with the Bruce Springsteen Archives and Center for American Music. So uh, thank you so much for having me. This, this truly means a lot. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of cool that, you know, you have this legacy of, you know, him keeping it. Um, there was supposed to be a conference this fall, um, <laughs> and I and a two or three other um, podcasters were going to go and we were going to do a live show and we were going to have a panel on it. Um, but you know, the pandemic happened. <laughs> well, I'm proudly, I, I am the proud co-host of that conference with Eileen Chapman. So yes. we'll get you out here yet. And, uh, we're, we're really hoping that all of the conditions allow us to, to hold that conference, honoring the legacy of the river uh, this coming fall. And yeah. I know our students are excited too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so while, if just give us your elevator pitch. Tell us a little about yourself and then we'll move on a little bit. <laughs> sure. Um, I uh, am a writer and a historian about the Beatles. Um, I, uh, a sometime novelist um, and uh, a person who is uh, passionate and dedicated to teaching uh these kinds of artifacts. And I realized that there are very few art artifacts or objects like the Beatles and Bruce. They're obviously in a very, uh, a very narrow class by themselves, but I, I really enjoy exploring and examining uh, subjects such as those to understand how popular art evolves and, and what works achieve greatness and which ones alas, and it's most of them do not. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've had um, your colleague Ken Campbell 
on the podcast and, and just enjoyed talking to him immensely. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, Bruce talks about it, right? Like it's the, the, I guess dichotomy is the right word, right? Like it's, it's the seriousness of everything yet. It's still rock and roll, right? Like, you know, and he, he often talks about that. And, and I think that's the beauty of this is while it is, um, pop culture in its finest, it also, tells us a lot about ourselves. And um, I think that's an interesting uh, discussion. There's another podcast that I listen to. Um, Andrew Hickey is doing 500 songs, a history of rock and roll and 500 songs. And, mm. uh, and he has gone through and have, have talked about that, like mm. the song stand by me has nothing original in it. <laughs> but by throwing all the pieces together, you make something greater than the total, right? And it becomes this classic. So uh, I think you're spot on, and uh, I'm looking forward to kind of discussing this. But before we get to that, I, I always like to, during now times, how are you doing with the craziness of COVID in 2020? Well, um, you know, obviously, uh, I feel very fortunate to uh, – hold the position that I do and to work for a, a university that is, is going strong in spite of everything. And, and I realize just how privileged so many of us are, um, you know, that are able to make ends meet, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And um, it, it's, it's an easy time, even though we're online at the moment to be dedicated to our students' welfare. You know, you, you can really see the struggle. I was telling them today in creative writing, you know, here you guys are, you are brave, you're tough. You know, you're, uh -huh. you're keeping the fires burning, you're writing uh, great work in spite of everything. And uh, I think it's a really good time here as we hopefully wind down this year um, and it doesn't turn back in on itself <laughs> or something yeah. um, as we as we hopefully get to the finish line and, and, and see a vaccine sooner rather than later that we think about uh, all the folks who, um, for circumstances often beyond their control, you know, they're the industry that got hit, right? Yeah. Or what have you, uh, socioeconomic circumstances that we think about those folks. So um, uh, I, I recognize that I'm doing very well in spite of everything, but it's, it's hard not to think about all the other people who are struggling. You know, I'm right there with you, Ken. Um, I, I've shared this on the podcast before. I had I was laid off on January 2nd, um, ended up finding a new company, got hired February 10th. And trust me, my wife and I have had the discussion, boy, did we time that right? You uh -huh. know, what, you know, fate, God, you know, whoever you want to go at, we got lucky. Um, and then I ended up working for a company that does roadside assistance for the RV industry. And for everyone who's been hurt, we have just exploded because traveling in an RV is one of the safest ways to, you know, protect yourself against COVID uh, because, you know, you're self-sufficient, you have your own facilities, you have your own area, you can still travel. And so the industry went crazy this spring and summer and mm. therefore we were kind of blessed. And when I see my friends working in other fields like restaurants and uh, other businesses, I am the same as you. I feel very blessed that I've been able to, you know, not only keep working, but our company actually expanded and we're hiring people, which is kind of nice to see. So mm. good. Well, I'm glad you're doing well. Um, 
So we're coming up on a pretty significant date. And I know we, we normally try to celebrate um, our, our icon's birthdays and not focus on their death. But John Lennon's death was such a shock. Um, I'm old enough. I was born in 59. I remember the disruption of Kennedy's assassination. I don't necessarily remember the assassination, though my mother said I did come into the room and say they killed the president. But I remember not being able to see cartoons because of the funeral. <laughs> to, you know, because I was four or five. But to a lot of us, Challenger and John Lennon's death is that kind of moment in time, isn't it? Sure. And, you know, John Lennon, more than, you know, the tragedy of the Challenger, had a very different kind of before and after effect, you know. Um, it was walking through a door, you could, you know, the space program could write itself and did, um, even though we lost a certain sense of innocence when that happened. John Lennon was, you know, it had a before and after effect. There was a, a door that shut and it was, um, I think a lot of people are still coming to grips with it. You know, the subject of this podcast, right? Bruce Springsteen, The Next Night in Philly. Yes. Uh, he breaks your heart. In fact, that was my paper um, for the conference, and I, I'll, I guess I'll be doing it next year uh -huh. uh, and seeing you there. Uh, hopefully we're not in too many masks, et cetera. Right. And everything's, and everything's right with the world. But, um, it, you know, Bruce summed it up just perfectly when he said a lot of us would be in a very different place tonight if it weren't for that guy. And it's, it's that simple. Yeah. What's interesting is I had a fan doc uh, was there the, the night before and he told the story and he got to the show, doc watched the show. It was a great show. And then when he got out, you know, his brother was picking him up because doc was like a teenager. And the first thing his brother said was, did Bruce mention it? Did he say anything? And he's like, what? John Lennon got shot. They just talked about it on a Monday Night Football. And he said, what? And then, you know, um, later, you know, you end up, they tell Bruce after the show and then the next night. So it, just a very different perspective. Before I get to that night, um, talk about maybe your personal experience with the Beatles. I, I had shared, growing up, I did, I was born in 59. I had two parents that were very um, immersed in country and Western music, you know, you know, Johnny Cash and Hank Williams and, and Charlie Pride and Merle Haggard. And I remember being at eight or nine visiting cousins in Ohio and they could not believe me, this would be 68, 69, that I could not name all four Beatles. <laughs> you know, because it just, that wasn't something that listened to our house. Um, and then obviously as I got older, I, I discovered the magic and that power of that music. Talk about yourself. Like before we even get to specifically John, talk a little about your personal experience with the Beatles. Sure. Um, uh, it, I was 11 years old. Um, I know that they had been in my world simply because, you know, once they, you know, visited our shores and the world, they never left our world. Yes. Um, you know, that's the, like I tell my students when we talk about the Revolver album, if the Revolver album is referring as, you know, I believe it does to the Wheel of Life or a record on a turntable, that record uh, quite literally has never stopped spinning since they released it. You know, I mean, it's something from that album is playing somewhere. It may be playing digitally now, but it, it has never stopped. Um, anyway, 
uh, this would have been 1977 or so. And, uh, you know, I'm not a first generation fan. Um, and one morning, my favorite cartoon uh, was preempted. It was gone. It was canceled. It actually wasn't a cartoon. It was a live action show. You may even remember called the New Zoo Review. Um, it was absolutely terrible. I do. Yeah, yes. it was a terrible show. And it was well, live action and it had giant puppets. Banana Splits was my generation live action. <laughs> well, I like show. the Banana Splits too. You know, I mean, yes. the go karts alone, right? But, right. Um, you know, it was a terrible show, but I was used to watching yes. uh, this, this show. And it wasn't there. And uh, I'm sure it was my incipient OCD. But, you know, it was, suddenly wasn't there. And they, I guess, the network had you know, the rights to show those terrible cartoons from the mid-1960s, the Beatles cartoons, you know, which aren't even their own voices. Um, right. And they're corny and, you know, at best they're corny. And, uh, and I watched them and it wasn't doing much for me, but then the songs played. And I think my first el episode was Help. Okay. Um, and I, I thought, good God, I mean, that's a winner. You know, you just hear it and you yeah. know something extraordinary. It is that simple. Yeah. But, there's a, there's another before and after effect. And you know what I, I, as I like to say in these kind of conversations, while we're talking right now, somebody's having that moment. Yeah. And I think it probably many somebody's. Yeah. Um, and you know, so that was my moment in 1977. What's, what's interesting, Ken is um, a few years ago um, and I'm, I'll go on a, I, I, if we were in a court of law, I would, they would say, okay, get to the point quickly, Jesse. But um, a few years ago, my wife was out of town and I, I rented the day. Are you day sure you want to record this part? Yes. The day okay. the earth stood still the original <laughs> uh, movie. Cause I had never seen it. And um, I watched it. And at the end I went, Oh my goodness, this was a great movie. It wasn't a great movie because of in context of what it was done. It stood up to the, the, you know, the passage of time. And regardless of how you judge it, it's just a great movie. Um, I think the same thing. Like when you hear Beatles music, um, it stands the test of time, whether it's their early hits or they're more toward the end when they were experimenting and doing a lot of creative things, it stands the test of time. And, the people that do say, well, I don't get why they're so good. I think they're not first. I think there's a little bit of cynicism in their heart because, well, if they're that great, I have to, they can't be cool, but also not understanding in context, how many, how groundbreaking they were as a band. I, I would agree. And I, I think, you know, at a certain point, not liking the Beatles um, is like not liking children or holidays, you know, or Thanksgiving yeah. or something. It's um, it's an unexamined kind of feeling. You know, I, I know there are plenty of people, uh, my attorney, <laughs> actually, yeah. um, who are not gaga over them necessarily, but they can mm -hmm. hear them and recognize, yeah. you know, the achievement um, because it is different. And it's uh, and as you know, I, I'm George Martin's biographer. Yeah. And uh, I like to give him credit. And I, th I think he deserves it for doing something very unique with him, with the Beatles. Uh, in fact, above and beyond I, even Bruce. And that is to uh, take them from a teeny bopper band in 1963 and 64 to uh, proliferate a proliferation across every demography uh, in every demographic uh, sector. It's quite unusual. I mean, even the single Yellow Submarine backed with Eleanor Rigby is case in point. 
Yeah. You, know, you can be a two-year-old or a 92-year-old, and there's something for you on that record. And their demographic expansion between 64 and 66 is uh, unmatched. Uh, and, and the Spotify numbers, you may have seen these uh, in Billboard recently, that almost exactly match where the Beatles were in 1967. Wow. In terms of their um infiltration and that sounds like invasion right but yeah. in terms of their uh you know their success in in those very same sectors it's quite remarkable you know a couple of things uh, i was lucky enough to have marine van zandt on the podcast um about a month or so ago and she was talking about that she she never listens to either little stevens or bruce's albums early she she always waits till the release day and she says it's partly because she remembers being a teenager and eagerly waiting to get that new Beatles album and to <laughs> throw that, that's but, a Beatles household right there too yes it is oh yes. yeah I mean he knows his stuff uh yeah I, I met him uh last the year before last we were at a reception for a benefit and um, he said, so you're the Beatles guy. <laughs> I said, oh, yes, yes, sir. I'll take <laughs> that, said, yes. He said, tell me something I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, huh. I said, well, did you know that um, when they were working on Can't Buy Me Love in January 1968, Norman Smith accidentally erased part of the hi-hat, and he had to go back in and re-record it uh, because the Beatles were in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> And I got the seal of approval. So that is that is very cool, um, and you know I think that's you're right, right? The the idea of them still being relevant and still being listened to today um, during the pandemic uh, a few months ago. Um, a Hard Day's Night was on Turner Classics or something, and I had not seen it in years, and I ended up you know, putting it on the DVR and I sat down and watched it and was first off a fun movie, but the amount of songs I'm like, was, was this like, did they take their greatest hit CD and like build a movie around it? No, it was just the songs they had available at the time. That's exactly right. You know, I, so I, I discovered them when I'm 11 and my parents uh, were not music lovers. My dad enjoyed classical music. My mother really almost no music at all and um but they were scholars uh you know my mother was a geologist my father was a physicist and mm -hmm. they did what you do when you suddenly become passionate about something they went to the downtown library this was in houston and they came back and brought me all the beatles books and said study learn them and of course that's when there quite frankly were very few beatles books but they brought yes. them home later uh that year or the next the University of Houston uh, downtown was having a, uh, you know, an art film festival. And uh, my father noticed that A Hard Day's Night was playing. And it's interesting, and I think it's impactful for me, that that was the first time I saw that film in this room full of, you know, cinephiles and, and, and film scholars uh, who afterwards, of course, held this talk <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, that I was probably uh, just shy of being ready to understand at 11 or 12. Um, but it was, uh, it, it, it's interesting to me that it happened in this space where I wasn't presented with this movie and, and, and 
and people said, you know, this is a fun film, right? Or a, a musical romp or a, you know, a, a rock musical review and all of those phrases that they used to describe it when it first came out, it was being presented as an art film. And I've, I think back on that now, and I, I do believe that that probably already had me thinking about the Beatles because of course they had broken up, you know, yes. uh, nine years earlier, I thought at the time and really closer to 10. Um, and so they already seemed past. Well, they were past in a lot of ways, but because of the breakup, you know, with an underline. And so in, in any event, it, it kind of concretized for me the fact that, you know, here we are looking at this, this piece of art and not a working band. Yeah. Um, and it is weird when you think about um, 10 years, right? that, you know, roughly that they were together and how much influence and how much music they made. Right. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's even more dramatic when you think about their recorded output, which is barely over seven. It's seven years and uh, two months. It's quite staggering how narrow that space is for them as these kind of working artists. You know, the George Martin moment is from June 6, 1962 to August 18th, 20th, somewhere in there, 1969. You're on mute. I had not realized it was that short of a time. And um, that is that is fascinating. Um and the creative chemistry of them working together, um, really the cliche, right? Like capturing lightning in a bottle and, and how much, but I know they worked at this too. Absolutely. And they also, despite their, you know, their tender years, I mean, what's Paul McCartney 27 when they end, you know, uh, well, I guess he's 28 at that point, but, um, their, despite their tender years, uh, it's quite amazing when you think about um, the fact that they were conscious that what they were doing was important. Yes. And, uh, and they said, you know, I mean, they were essentially realizing just about the time George Martin was, you know, blowing up that demography we talked about earlier. At around that time, that's when they start to realize, hey, wait a second, this is bigger than us. Uh-huh. You know, um, there is something powerful at work here. And uh, as I tell my students, they, they, they did capitalize on that moment and became ambitious. And, uh, you know, the one other person uh, that I see in the history of this business who really does that is, in fact, Bruce, who, uh, especially in the 1970s and moving really toward Nebraska, you can watch him in almost real time making decisions about the course of this artwork that he is now privileged to make. You know, it started as one thing, but by the river, it's something else. And, and Ken, do you believe, because I have heard people make the argument that after Born in the USA, and it is so explodes in this mushroom of success, right? Like you, it's everywhere <laughs> that he may have, you know, ton of love and disbanding the band specifically may be like trying to control the wildfire that was his career. Yeah. You know, I, I have, I've thought a lot about that, that kind of moment. And, you know, the thing that 
that does separate him from any conversation with the Beatles is what we just talked about. You know, he doesn't work for seven years and two months. He has a very long career. It is a career that's still going. Um, it is, uh, it, it's one that's still evolving with him as he moves into, um, I'm going to call him, he doesn't seem old to me, but older age, right? Yes. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a powerful, uh, he continues to have access to an evolving muse. And I'm sure we could find plenty of people who would say, well, he's just not, you know, as good as he was with the river or yeah. uh, perhaps later or what have you. And, and those folks always exist. Yes. Um, but I think what they're, they're not understanding, and maybe it's just because my training is in English literature. So it's always been about studying you know, words, and in this case, words and music as art objects, right? And when it comes to Bruce, he's a guy who is blessed with longevity. You yeah. Know, you know, the Beatles, they did a very smart thing by breaking up. They walk off that, they walk across that street, and they don't do anything else ever again. <laughs> it's a foursome. It's over. Um, and, uh, you know, that creates a mystique that's very effective for them. What we get with Bruce, though, is this kind of evolving artistry where we can follow him, you know, even pre-fame, pre-Columbia, yeah. from what he was trying to do working in the clubs all the way through, you know, the album that was just released. Uh, I, it's remarkable. And, and what I, I try to challenge people to do is to think about the fact that we are privileged to watch this artist develop in the same way, you know, if you read the poetry of W.B. Yeats, right, you start off with the early Irish poems and by the end he's saying huge things about the troubles in, in Ireland and, and the state of being alive and, and all of these sorts of things. And, and that's what Bruce is doing. And frankly, I mean, Western Stars uh, to me was a revelation. I, I, you know, I still haven't stopped admiring it. Um, I I have said that it it is almost like um, it was a collection of Elmore Leonard short stories. <laughs> Very nice, right? That it felt like that. You felt like um, you know Raylan could be in one of those characters. Um, I, and that I, last song. What's the last song? Um... Moonlight Motel. Yes, thank you. Yeah, uh, yeah John Landau. I was talking to him uh for some business with the university yeah and uh he said when you hear the album spend some time listening to that and he's right mm -hmm. yeah you know, it's an extraordinary achievement that song in particular you know it, it, it's it's uh it's so detailed every nuance yes you know what it is it's uh think about you know the first album right where you have all this manic energy is, what did Bruce say? He said it when he was interviewing, uh, he was doing the interview with Bob Santelli here at the university. He said, you know, I had my rhyming dictionary out. I was trying right. to, I was trying to be a poet and act like one, you know, like we do when we're young. Right. With well, Western stars, um, yeah. every moment, it feels choreographed and deliberate. You know, and that's a powerful piece of art. I apologize. I'm no, definitely. no, I, I totally agree with you. And, and I, I do just need to, Get your feeling on. I had a, I had um, Daniel, who is a fan on the podcast a few months ago, and he said, Jesse, I need you to think about this. I'm at the reunion show in 99, and I'm going, This is it. <laughs> They've come back. We've gotten a tour. 
you know, this is the apex of my fandom. They may every few years get together, do like the Eagles. You know, I don't think they're going to become the Beach Boys where they tour every year. But, you know, they'll, they'll do every once in a while, they'll do a tour. Uh, but, you know, this was it. And he said, if you had told me in 99 that we had the rising, we had magic, we had wrecking ball, we had the Seeger sessions, we had Western stars, and oh my God, letter to you. Right. <laughs> he said, um, Broadway you know, the, the Western stars film, he says, I wouldn't have believed it. And, you know, you think about how far his career has gone since then in this stage. Yeah. And he is not a nostalgia act. And I, I see what Daniel must've been thinking there in 99, right? This is going to become that kind of experience. And Bruce was not going to become the Eagles. Yes. I, I wish the Eagles had not become that version of the Eagles, right. but, but they did. And I, I'm, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of reasons why perhaps, uh, you know, they were a band prone to violence. I'm sure there yeah. was plenty of reasons why they couldn't be that group, but yeah. man, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I'm almost more impressed with the, uh, what he's done in this century, even compared to the nineties. Certainly. Yeah. Uh, it, and, it and there was nothing wrong with the nineties, mind no, you. No, no. Uh, you know, and, I caution people. Um, I was I was lucky to see the the Broadway show a couple times, and I would caution people, you know, as they were gearing up for their visit, that um, this was not going to be some memory lane kind of experience. You know, he right. was taking us into a place where, using you know, obviously the stories from his book, he was forcing us to think about our own stories. I remember the one about uh, his father going into the bar to get his father. Yes. And what a foreign place it was. I tell you, both times I heard that, I thought, damn, is he talking about me? And, you know, the time yeah. I had to go in and mom said, go get your dad. And I'm like, really? I have to go in this bar? I'm like yes. eight or 10 or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, or 12. And I, I didn't, it doesn't even matter what the age is. I was underage and it was like walking into a foreign land. It was. Yeah. And, you know, and uh, like I, um, I was able to go to multiple shows on the, the second river tour and there were a lot of highlights, but independence day really hit me strong that he is now probably older than his father was at the time that he wrote this song as a young man. He's now seeing it as an older man, you know, he's, he's done both sides of the perspective. And, um, and it really struck me. And I saw my own struggles with my son and my struggles with my wife and, you know, um, our son, because, you know, a strong-willed teenager and a strong-willed, you know, mom, a strong-willed dad, that, that argument back and forth. And um, I saw our relationship in that song. And I agree with you, there's too much, there is so much in Broadway that you go, yeah, I, I, I think about that. I know that. Yeah, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's great writing at the end of the day is what it is because he's setting off these little tiny explosions, right, with various yeah. points in his, uh, in his narrative that, you know, at some point or another are going to catch somebody if they're paying attention and take them to another place. Yeah, um, I had um, the uh, writer Ron Martz, who has uh, written 
um, a lot of different comics and, and novels. And um, he talked about Bruce Springsteen and Stephen King are the two biggest influences on his writing. Um, and we were talking about the, the From My Home to You, you know, segments that he's been doing this time. And um, I, I'm quoting Ron because I want to give him credit. He said, we knew he was a good storyteller. Why are we shocked that he can <laughs> tell stories in any format he wants? That's right? right. Like, you know, and, and I'm like, you're right. I mean, of course he can. You know, of course he can weave the story by picking songs and telling stories. It's amazing. Yeah, and he, he recognizes the elasticity of his music. You know, the, certainly, in, I think it survived in the later incarnations of the show. Uh, that that dark version of Born in the USA, you know. Uh, a, a great artist recognizes that, you know, their work can be reconstituted. Yes. And uh, I thought that was pretty powerful. Yeah, I, I've said this many times. I've never been a fan of the blues version of Born in the USA. I, I like the anthem. And so I'm at Broadway. I was I was lucky enough through the grace of my lovely bride to go, um, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm in it's Dallas. It's not all fussing and fighting there in that household, right? Right, yeah. No, no, no. It's no, she's very loving and caring. And so she's like, you've got to go. You've got to go. So I'm sitting there and he tells the story, right, of not making the draft and the physical. And then he says, but I often wonder who went in my place. And then he plays that bluesy version of Born in the USA. And I go, oh my God, I've been wrong this whole time. This is absolutely the perfect version of this <laughs> song for this. And it, it is just, yeah. Um, and not to make this a review of Broadway, but I'm also, it was funnier than I thought it would be. <laughs> you know, I, I found myself laughing and sharing tears. So absolutely, I agree. When, so as Lil Steven says, you're the Beatles guy. Talk a little bit about, as you got into this, what made you decide to start writing about that and doing that research? Well, I wouldn't be doing anything if it weren't for a, a guy named Mark Lewison, who in the late 1980s published the Beatles recording sessions. And I would argue that that book probably is the reason why we have many of the best books about Bruce. I was talking to, you know, Peter Ames Carlin recently, and we were having this very discussion about, you know, where our business came from. Yes. Uh, and it really came from being able to have reference works like that that were authoritative, or at least as authoritative uh, as they could be at the time, that gave people a reference work. And I couldn't do anything without the many, many fine reference works that now exist in this field. That's not the work I want to do. I'm interested in trying to understand this kind of artistic evolution. And there are, you know, I would think this uh, fellow named Keith Badman the other day who uh, constructed, you know, I, I think he calls them his Beatles diaries, but really they're just day by day you know, quotes from every news source that the Beatles spoke to. So the books are, you know, like this thick, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, you can't work without those kinds of, uh, those kinds of books. And, and it's just a, a kind of passion for trying to understand that unusual uh, trajectory that they have. I still don't think I have a handle on it, um, but uh, it, it just endlessly fascinates me. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I imagine you're the same way. I love them. I love Bruce, but I would love to see a legitimate 
part pop explosion of music that will have their kind of timelessness. I haven't heard it yet, but I, yeah, I sure hope it comes along. Um, you know, dethrone them for all I care. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because you know that's inspiring to me. Um, it's inspire, and I think it's inspiring to our students, as we talked about a moment ago. When I can say, look what these guys did. They were sick and tired of each other. Um, George Harrison quits that band in January 1969. A week or so later, he comes back and he says, heart of hearts, I should be here with you guys. I.e., even though I can't stand how you treat me as a second-class citizen, what we're doing is more important. And, um, you know, I think that kind of recognition of where you are in the moment is is really something. Yeah, um there was a, I, I ended up picking up last year a, um, a novel, Once There Was a Way, What If the Beatles Stayed Together by a guy named Bryce Zabel. Yeah. And um, fascinating alternate history. And, um, and, and, he, and he had some fun with it and, you know, what they would do. But the premise was, you know, that because they ended up being Johnny Carson came back from vacation and was on the tonight show with them instead of Joe Gargiola that him and (laughs) that would have helped in itself. Yes. And he said that he, when they, they clicked and him and Ed McMahon talked about how they were always there for each other, no matter what happened, they were always up for each other. And that made John and Paul kind of click. And that was the, you know, the whole for the want of a nail, you know, the alternate (laughs) history that that changed them enough that they stayed together. And I think that's very because you're talking about like George, like I know this is where I should be. There is a greater music here. Uh, Well, having said that, I do think that they needed to break up. I I think that that was well, I mean, commercially, it was the smartest thing they ever did. Right. Created a mystique that exists right now. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, part of the reason we're talking tonight was the other reason why there was never a reunion or or any kind of um, part two, act two. Yeah, and and it – well, let's talk about that. Um, So – first off let's 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 talk about your book so tell us uh give us a little bit about it and uh and then i want to go into your memories of that night sure it, it's called john lennon 1980 the last days in the life i wanted a book that was not a true crime book and <laughs> sure enough here we are in the in the late stages of this 40th anniversary year and there are plenty of them sure um, i didn't want a book that was gory and had violence in an archway i wanted to know about you know, what was the progress like from roughly December 1979 when he sees George Martin for the last time to, you know, the last day? What is that like? And, uh, um, you know, I wanted, when you write a book, right, you want to experience a life on, you know, like a camera on the shoulder of your subject as they they make their progress from beginning to end. And, you know, it was an end all right. but it was a rule that really helped me because I, I didn't stray from that kind of focus. So in other words, you know, there are plenty of salacious stories about what may or may not have been happening in their lives during that period. And as you know, Goldman had his salacious book from in the 1980s. This is not that book. You know, um, I only care about what the artist is seeing and what he wants to do to try to make this thing, which is very risky, happen. 
You know, it's it, the world he left in 75 is not the one he's coming back to in 1980. It is a very competitive marketplace. Um, you know, there are lots of genres like coming together and sure. clashing. Disco is still running the world. Um, you've got all the dinosaurs. They didn't call them dinosaurs yet, but they were <laughs> um, walking the earth and lots of new music coming. There's a new British invasion. You can already see the sort of embers of it coming over the horizon. Uh, and this is the place that he and Yoko plant their flag in November 1980. It's a tough, tough marketplace. So there was risk involved. But the payoff to me is so magnificent because you can see him as you spend time with him, watching him craft all of these demos. And of course, many of them he'd started some years earlier uh, in the late 70s. Uh, you can see him gaining confidence. Uh, and in my, my absolute favorite moment, and we owe Yoko Ono that this even exists, she had written an essay about it. John was determined to have this big hit record so he could go back to England. He had not been there in nine years. So the last time John ever goes to England is 1971. Um, he wants to go home and have a homecoming with his relatives, many of whom he's still close to. Wants to ride, he said he wants to take an ocean liner up the Thames and triumphantly, you know, ride into, I sure. guess, into London like an invading conqueror or something. Uh, but I think he really just missed folks and missed England. Uh, and he wanted to do it on the back of a hit record. And, you know, as you know, Double Fantasy did not explode out of the gate. Right. Um, and, you know, 14 year old me was thrilled that all of my Beatles were doing something. Sure, <laughs> you know, absolutely, yes. I couldn't believe it. You know, I followed the stories um, when all the press releases started to come out that maybe John and Yoko were, were making a record again. Um, but it was, uh, it, you know, it was, it came out slowly in that way and Yoko felt bad. She felt bad because she knew how much John wanted this big moment and it wasn't coming. She thought it would happen, but it wasn't happening yet. Mm -hmm. And she came to him there in the sitting room, I guess about a week, 10 days before he was murdered. And she said, it, it just isn't, you know, I'm sorry. And he said, it's okay. We've still got the family. Oh, that's nice. Isn't that wonderful? Because John Lennon in 1972, uh, I don't think he could do that. No. Uh, I, but, you know, I think he would have felt beleaguered or troubled in some way. There's a centeredness to be able to even say that. Uh, that that is inherent in that remark. You know, and I, I I love the idea that he was though competitive, like he wanted to be successful. He oh, and, absolutely, and, and it's because I want people to hear this music. Uh, you know, I want that people want to hear my music, and and so I love that idea. Um, but then and, the flip side, right, yes. is that here he is also acknowledging what it's tough for us to do. And this is a guy who only gets to be 40 years old in two months. And what is he thinking? Uh, he's thinking, yeah, but you know what? I love the experience. And that's what all of us could always be better at, right? Doing something, yes. feeling like it was worthwhile and being satisfied by the experience. And when you look at those last few months and you, you know, you talk to some of the folks he worked with, you see that he was that guy. And, and you know, I'm, I'm older than John would ever be, and I wish I could still be that guy. <laughs> right? You know, you know um, what I mean? I absolutely do, Ken. Um, every once in a while, someone on Twitter will say, hey, if you had to do a TED Talk, you know, and you had to, someone put you on stage and like, go, you've got to do a TED Talk, what would you do? And 
Um, you mentioned Bruce in the 90s. Um, Better Days is one of my favorite songs of his um, because I believe that song is all about exactly what you're talking about, that life is a journey. And instead of spending like when I become successful, then I'm going to be happy. When the kid's out of diapers, then I'm going to enjoy being a parent. When I get that promotion, then I'm going to be happy. It, it's the journey. It is the enjoying what the process of what you're doing, and these are the better days. And to hear um, the story of John, like, hey, you know, we've got the family. We, we had the experience of building this album together. And whether people, and we have this great kid, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, that's 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 just that's a great story. That's a great story. Um, I, I I have a not a unique story, but um, at the time in 1980, I was working at a trucking company as a dispatcher, and I worked six at night to six in the morning, and there was not a TV in the dispatch office. So um, I did a lot of reading, uh, would, um, you know, at times listen to the radio. And on Monday, you know, that, that Tuesday morning when I turned on the radio and it was uh, the local FM station, they were playing a Beatles song, which was not their format. And um, I immediately picked up the phone um, and called in and the guy answered and I said, has something happened? And that's how I heard that John had been shot. So unlike Monday night football people, so talk to me your experience and, and you know, that personal feeling of, of this shocking news. You know, I had a similar experience to that one. I didn't call a radio station or anything of the sort, but I remember, I guess it would have been earlier in the year, right? Hearing Led Zeppelin music <laughs> on yes. the radio and realizing, uh-oh, something's going on. It was out of format for the station I was hearing. You know, suddenly right. they're playing Cashmere or something, and it's, you know, soft, it's FM, soft FM or something, soft rock. Um, I was, uh, you know, I, I was a, into that record in such a big way because it was exciting that it came out. And, you know, I, I was my first John Lennon release in the time when I was – you know, this enormous young fan. And uh, so I bought the single when it came out in October. Uh, on the day I, I it was out, it, I bought it at Target. <laughs> yes. For all my record buying needs. Uh, and that was back when, you know, record stores were everywhere. And then uh, in November, purchased Double Fantasy there too. And I had the thing actually um, sort of displayed like a kid, you know, like you do in your mid-teens, right? I had it sort of set up on my... Uh, uh, actually on the shelf that's right there in this room in New Jersey. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in any event, that's weird. Um, at least the stereo has gone because that thing was not great. Uh -huh. My computer has better sound now, right? But anyway, I had it set up there next to my, my turntable. And, uh, and so it was in heavy rotation in my world. And uh, that night I'd gone to bed early for reasons, who knows, you know, it was December school, I'm sure was, killing us. I was in the orchestra and practiced my French horn a lot. So usually the first of the week was uh, pretty exhausting in that world. And I'd gone to bed early and, um, and, you know, we would have been an hour behind uh, down in central time. 
Right. And I was laying in bed and I had my door shut. But you know how you know when your parents are coming when you're that age? Yes, I remember. Because you just yes. know. It's the same way I knew my mother's cough in a store. Yes. So I could decide, you know, am I going to shuck and jive my way out of here? You know, what's going right. to happen? Um, or, or, or am I going to get in trouble for the thing I shouldn't be doing? Um, it was usually that. But anyway, I could, I could tell it was him coming down the hallway. And I... I was tired, even though I was still awake, and I didn't want to be bothered. <laughs> and I've actually, I talked to him about this recently, uh, and uh, and he sort of pushes open my door, and I can hear him, and I'm, you know, I'm pretending to be asleep, and he shuts the door and, and left. And the next morning, I came down, and there it was. He put the the morning paper on, you know, where my breakfast, uh, mm. where I had breakfast, and you know. You know, he'd heard it on Monday Night Football. Um, yeah. Like so many others. And it was just, uh, you know, I've never gotten over it. It's worse. It's been worse since I've been older than he ever got to be because yeah. you realize just how you were nothing at 40. I mean, there are, uh, yeah, it's, it's incredible. You know, you're just, um, you've barely lived. I mean, even though he certainly lived an extraordinary life. Yeah, um, it just you hurt more for his family, you know, and his 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 boys and and Yoko and yeah. the people that they loved because it's just uh, it's despicable, you know. There's so many senseless things in the world, uh, but then you know this book helped me a lot because uh, you know now I know that within an hour, very likely of of that terrible thing happening, he's in the studio and they're listening to one of my favorite songs by John and Yoko or we should say Yoko and John, in this case, walking on thin ice. Okay. And John is so excited by it. Forget this thing they just made together, right? He says this, that song, he said, this is the direction. Wow. In the last hour of this extraordinary person's life, he feels like he's finally seen the direction. <laughs> you know, um, what hope do the rest of us have? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's, you know, it's powerful to see someone at that moment um, still, like you said earlier, still being competitive, still being stoked by a passion for creation. Yeah, and what I find very interesting is, um, and, and I've had this discussion with um, some of the, all fandom have a few people that um, are those guys, right? The The people that uh, I don't care for the Beatles or, you know, um, and there's, well, you know, I don't see why Bruce goes to Broadway and why is he, why, why is he, he's forgotten the little man. It's costing us such big tickets and, oh, Western stars. Why, why is he doing this? And I had one fan, like one letter to you came out like five days. I remember when you used to take five months to do one song. And, you know, my point is, First off, he's earned the right to do whatever the heck he wants to do. And secondly, as a fan, I applaud that he is trying new creative endeavors each time, that he is trying to find something different. Yeah. And to hear that one of John's last interactions was with his favorite co, you know, for all, you know, he adored Yoko and loved working with her. And he's excited about what they're doing together is a very sad memory but it's also a happy memory like I, right. I, I, 12 years know. into a marriage right and you yes. are somebody's best cheerleader 
I don't care what's happened in your marriage. They had their ups and downs, but sure. They were, they fought hard for each other that year. And yeah. you know, time after time, you can see uh, the remarks that she provides that support that. This, and this is a, I love the idea, as you said, you didn't want to do a true crime. You didn't want to do a gore. Um, you just wanted to get into um, a, a significant person in your life and, you know, their final year. Is there a couple things that surprised you, you found in your research? Uh, first of all, I have no idea when they found time to eat. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I've seen photos, you know, in the studio where Fred Seaman, their assistant, is bringing in food. And so that must have been, <laughs> that must have been the answer. But, um, you know, it was almost like Beatles times. They were so busy running from one thing to another. Um, mm -hmm. And they'd gone from, you know, a period of a more sedentary existence. So, um, but I don't know if I was surprised by that. It just, it's a, it's a revelation. Okay. Um, I, I suppose one of the myths about his last year is that he writes all of this music in Bermuda. He does not. Okay. Uh, he had been working on some of it even before he returned to Yoko in the Dakota. Uh, you know, much of it was written, uh, you know, even two years earlier in the case of watching the wheels, you know, he'd had this song, he was kicking around with different titles, probably recognizing it because he would know better than most that this was something special and it needed to percolate in that way. Um, I, I had a ball uh, running down some of the blind alleys in John Lennon's scholarship. For example, uh, the story of one of the most beautiful songs uh, in his, his late years, and that's Grow Old With Me, uh, which was on the Milk and Honey posthumous album. And Yoko had written in the liner notes about how John had seen a baseball film. And I thought, well, now why the hell has nobody ever found out what film it was? Sure. And so I spent uh, a good bit of time um, watching, you know, dozens upon dozens of the hundreds of movies, by the way, about baseball made between, uh, you know, roughly, you know, the twenties to, sure. to the, the, the year John died. Um, and she was off the mark on, on her guess at what period it had been, but that only made it more fun. Uh -huh. uh, and I found it by, you know, getting copies of TV guide and studying <laughs> John love TV. Yeah. You know, and he, here's the thing that also excited me and it, it's going to seem simple and, and not perhaps the kind of thing that your viewers look for. It was such a smaller world. We watched you and I watched the same shows John Lennon did. Yes, we did. There's just no doubt about it. He liked, you know, a Donna summer song or two that we probably liked. Yes. <laughs> it's just because they were good. You know, and, well, and, 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 and it was such a smaller place. You know, he didn't miss Saturday Night Live for the most part. When it came on, he watched. Yeah. Um, right. and there's so that. I, I, was, I was fascinated by that. But yeah. anyway, the baseball film was some made-for-TV thing that barely ever played on television at all. It was a, in fact, I had to have it digitized so I could watch it. <laughs> but there it was, you know, mm -hmm. the poem being read in a scene. You know, what's, what's interesting, right, is... There's the, I remember, uh, you know, the book telling the story about him and Paul watching Saturday Night Live when, um, you know, um, they make the offer, right? That, yeah. <laughs> and at the end, they were, it was too late. They were actually, though, tempted to go down there. Um, and yes, it, I, we're going to sound like a couple of old farts, right? But um, 
I grew up in Louisiana, Lake Charles. So I'm three hours away from you. I know uh, it well. We, yeah. uh, part of my youth was in New Orleans. We lived okay. there for three or four years. Yeah. So, um, you know, you, you had the three stations and maybe <laughs> a UHF station. I mean, you know, uh, I, I moved to Dallas when Fox became the fourth major station, you know, and, um, and what was weird, um, you probably didn't experience this in Houston or New Orleans, but Lake Charles was small enough that um, the NBC affiliate was in Lake Charles and there was an ABC affiliate both in Beaumont and Lafayette. So you can choose which ABC station you wanted and a CBS station also in Beaumont and, uh, you know, Lafayette. And so um, it was, it was strange, right? That uh, when I moved to Dallas, I'm like, what do you mean you have all major station networks? That is weird. I had never thought of that. (laughs) Do, um, and I guess it is, it is senseless to think about it, but we all do. Um, any speculation if this horrible murder hadn't happened, what might have happened? Well, I mean, I like to believe that, um, you know, we would have seen John on his world tour in 1981 that he was planning, and uh, hopefully he would have had a great experience. Um, uh, you know, it, it's so hard to say because when we look back at those those years, you know, they're certainly not like the year of COVID right now, but, yeah. but, you know, it's, it's a busy, crazy world. It's hard to predict those things. I think, um, unfortunately, and I, I don't want people to take this the wrong way, but, and by the way, when anybody ever says that, it's like, here comes something that you could very well take the wrong way. Yes, exactly. I hate like hell that he's, that he died that way and that he's dead at all. Um, but I don't know that they would have done much, uh, for their legacy by getting back together right. um, because everybody was getting back together in the eighties. And a right. lot of times it was just awful. I mean, uh, what Leonard Skinner, they had a reunion team t- tour and they were two thirds dead, you yeah. know? So I think they might've tarnished what they'd accomplished or they would have been amazing. Right. Who knows? We, yeah. we will never know. Um, but I think there is, is something to be said for leaving that body of work in the shape it was left right um and and i'm not against remixing or mashups or all of the things that the beatles uh, have done through apple uh you know or with giles martin i'm fine with all of that stuff i mean that they left their artistic legacy in a place intact and um you know john would say that over and over again when he'd talk about the reunions you've got all this great music and he was right it's the only thing that ever really mattered Right. Um, you know, we can talk about the films and Beetle wigs and all sorts of nostalgia paraphernalia um, that I've never been interested in. But the only thing that matters is the art object. And the best thing they do is secure the ownership of the sound recordings. Yeah. And, and that's the thing that mattered. And he would say that. He would say, if we get back together, it will not be that band. It'll be the band of us now in 1985 yes. or whenever. Yes. Um, and he would also... Um, he would also note uh, just the sheer impossibility of, of, of what that would mean. It wouldn't mean a nostalgia act necessarily for people. When you think about the money, though, that was starting to be, and I'm sure you remember this even better than I did being a couple of years older. I mean, you know, it was already in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Yes. 
1979 and 1980, it was on its way to a billion. Yes. And, you know, they, I forgot if it was McCartney or Lennon said, you know, when it gets north of a billion dollars, how do you ignore the opportunity to change the life of a country, (laughs) you know, or what have you? I mean, they're all, you know, deeply progressive uh, humanists and that would have been tough to ignore. And I don't think they would have. Yeah. And I I think that's interesting. And you're right. Um, Would this, because I go back to the, the people that want, darkness on the edge of town again or they want born to run again and you know versus um you know and paul has experimented and done you know wings and and gone and made a lot of music and you wonder it would have been different it would have been and i think you're right that that we you know as he said this would have been this band and we could not duplicate that again um as a fan, I would love to see that, but I tend to be, hey, I would have been there buying scalper yeah, tickets yes. at ungodly prices. So don't, yeah, don't and, get me wrong. And, and, and I tend to be an optimist. I'm, my, uh, my lovely bride always says, well, of course you love Bruce's new album, Jesse, it's you. I'm like, yes, you're, it's fair, right? It is that, uh, that's, that's a very interesting, um, just and and I'm really looking forward to reading your book. But if you could, just a how do you sum up his legacy? Well, I, I don't in the book. Um, okay. I mean, I do in a way. Uh, you know, I just you're not going to see a murder in it. Um, it's what I try to do is, and when I get on the flip side of that, just keep pushing further and further away until I. Sean Lennon has the last word in the book. Okay. About a memory, uh, he and his father. Yeah, they you know when you're when you're a five-year-old right you've got something you do with your kid and it's yeah. kind of your thing um mine was apparently to pretend i was asleep when my father came to you know visit yes me. But, give <laughs> these important stories yes yeah but you know his was that john would come in and uh you know he would turn out the lights like parents do and he would sort of flick those old switches and he'd say good night shawnee you know and he'd flick it so there'd be you know, the light kicking back like on a and strobe off, light, yeah. like a strobe light. And he'd say, see you in the morning. And, uh, and Sean would lay there and, uh, he said he would, um, he would watch the shadows, uh, and the, the headlights from the cars, you know, down below on Central Park West. And they would, they would create these shadows on the wall. And he said, you know, it reminded him of his dad's song. And I wonder if he was looking at the same shadows. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, you know, so I think his legacy is the, I think his legacy is the music. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, no disrespect to our first generation fans who were there in 1964, losing their minds at JFK, right? Right. Um, but most everybody who ever discovers the Beatles will not have that experience. In fact, because, and I think you'd agree that they're going to be around in 200 years. Yeah. Um, it will be a minute amount of people who experience that in real time. That doesn't mean that they're not special. Surely they are. But, you know, it's like we said earlier, a kid is listening, uh, who's, you know, listening to the Beatles tonight, discovered them on YouTube or wherever and said, what the hell? And she went and she played everything and she's not going to play it in order, by the way. No, she (laughs) isn't. She goes to Spotify or iTunes. The first song that's going to hit her is here comes the sun. And 
good for her. She's going to click that song. She's not going to click Love Me Do. <laughs> it's yeah. not going to be up to the, right? So they're going to be able to experience them in their own way. And, you know, 20, 30 years from now, they'll experience the Beatles and discover them in ways I don't know that we can imagine yet, even though, God help you and me, we've been through a lot of format changes. <laughs> yes, we have. Um, My favorite line in, uh, about the Beatles is actually, uh, who is it in, uh, in Men in Black? <laughs> Tommy yeah. Lee Jones, when he sees that new format, he's like, great, I have to buy the White Album again. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you, you made me smile, your, your parents. Um, I have told this story so many times, but summer of 77, I had just graduated high school, a Saturday night, don't have anything to do. I go to the local mall. Are you I still walk. in Louisiana then? Yes, I am. Lake Charles, Louisiana, Preon Lake Mall. I have, uh, I walk into a Montgomery Wards and I go to their music department and I pick up the Beach Boys Endless Summer, eight <laughs> And I never heard really, maybe vaguely the Beach Boys, you know, um, maybe because 15 big ones had come out in 76, you know, but I vaguely, and I put that eight track in my car and I went, oh my gosh, what is this? I've never heard anything like this, right? Because I'm listening to AM radio. I'm listening to Elton John. I'm listening to Queen. I'm listening to, I was a huge Kiss fan at the time, right? I, you know, just the whole drama and everything. And oh my goodness. And so I'm exploring everywhere I can to try to find out what, who is this Brian Wilson guy and what is he doing? And, and, you know, and going to the library and trying to find books on the beach boys and, and talk about not finding books. Right. Uh, and looking up encyclopedia articles and looking in magazines and trying to look back pages. And so um, what's beautiful now, as you talk about that teenager is on Spotify, she listens and now then she can pull up Wikipedia or other thing and look and see, um, you know, similar to what I do. Uh, one of my other podcasts is I do a Doctor Who podcast. When I'm, I watch a classic Who episode, I then go afterwards and do all this research about, you know, the stories behind the story. and the yeah, We want to know things. more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And now you have that. And people are always going to want to know more, right? So that, yes. that, that we live with, but, mm -hmm. but it's that period of discovery that you really only get to have once. Yes. And what is it? I, I can't remember who, but someone said, I, 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 I envy you because you're going to get to hear that you're going to hear yesterday for the first time. You're going to hear, you know, Strawberry Fields for the first time or any song, right? You're going to hear that that first time and you can only hear it once, you know. Um, if I Fell in Love with You continues to be something that just is magic to me. When yeah. I, that harmony and that beauty and the simplicity of the song, yet it's so complex, um, just something amazing. Um, Ken, I have taken way too much time. I, I appreciate you so much. Uh, but before I let you go, we had talked before I hit record. I end every episode with the Mary question. So real quickly, um, Jay Armstrong is an honors English teacher in the Philadelphia area. And he always takes two days and his, his seniors, they break down Thunder Road as a poem. 
he, they go through all the lyrics. They, he talks about the imagery Bruce uses on the song. They talk about the themes. Uh, he compares it to Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken. And then at the end of the two days, he asks his class, does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? So Ken, that is your question. <laughs> does Mary get in the car? Yeah, she ain't a beauty, but hey, she's all right. Yes. Um, so I think there's just enough mystery with this guy that she wants to know more. I think she gets in the car. Okay. Um, I could see the argument the other direction, uh, but I think it's just daring enough that uh, she's going to jump in that car. I think there are other songs that he has where perhaps it goes another direction, but in this one, yeah, Mary's going to show up. So I, I saved this story. She's a comer. <laughs> yeah, I saved this story, but to go back to Moonlight Motel, um, I had a guest right after Western Stars came out, and he said, yes, she gets in the car, and they drive to California together. They spend a life together, and Moonlight Motel is him mourning Mary's passing. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> and I said, you know, I, I don't the, know. Yeah. What's, I, what's I, the first song on that album? Um, uh, Hitchhiker, right? Yeah. Uh, wow. yeah. That is such a big 1970s song right. i don't know about you but yeah. i have enough knowledge of the 70s and being alive enough of uh, well, i was alive for all of it but yeah you know being of <laughs> of a yeah. person who was paying attention was really toward the end yeah but i i remember that feeling when i hear that it resonates with me and i'm no like i said i'm no nostalgia person but right it feels like a big song when my parents adored uh as i talked about country music and Glenn Campbell. And so Jim, the Glenn Campbell and, you know, um, feel of the album and, yeah. and all the album was, you know, something pretty special. So yes, I agree with you. When, when the guy told me that theory that Moonlight Motel was the bookend, I'm like, okay, I don't know if that's, that may be the right answer. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, so very nice. Ken, this is amazing. I appreciate it. I cannot wait to, I know that we are going to have this seminar either virtual or in person. I think it's going to be great. Um, I love the work you guys are doing to, to, to preserve Bruce's legacy and his music. And much like the Beatles in 200 years, I think in 200 years, you know, Springsteen's music will still be listened to and will be enjoyed. And I also think that it will be used to tell history the way, you know, that um, you guys already do in a couple of the classes there. So I think it's just something pretty special. And I appreciate all y'all's work. Outstanding. Well, I hope you'll sit down on my class next semester. I'll be, I'll be giving you a call. That sounds great. All right. So if someone wants to reach you, how can they, and how can we get the book? Oh, well, you just go to kennethwomack.com and, um, you know, it'll take you right to Amazon or your favorite bookseller. Very nice. All right. Uh, Ken, thank you so much. Um, listeners, you please stay safe. Remember to social distance. Remember to wash your hands. Remember to wear an effing mask. Um, <laughs> we've got to be here for each other. And uh, we will talk to you soon. Goodbye. 
doing a podcast at times can be a one-way conversation, and I hate that. So please let me know what you like and don't like about the work I'm doing. You can reach the podcast via email at setlustingbruce at gmail.com. The show is on Twitter, at setlustingbruce, and my personal Twitter is at jessejacksondfw. We have a website, www.setlessingbruce.com. From there, you can find links to other Springsteen podcasts, as well as other music-themed podcasts. We have a page devoted to our own SLB All-Star Band. These are guests who have been on the podcast more than three times. There is a link to our store, where you can purchase Set Lessing Bruce shirts, as well as a Merry Question t-shirt. There is a link to our Patreon page, where you can sign up to help support the podcast financially. We have different levels and different rewards based on your support. If you don't have any extra cash, and right now who does, you can support the podcast by subscribing via your favorite podcast player and leaving us a review. The more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find us. And please tell a friend about the podcast, especially if they love Bruce or music, because it will make a difference. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, said Listening Bruce. Set Listening Bruce is part of the Southgate Media Podcast Group. The theme for Set Listening Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.